Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today we're gonna to be talking about uh, the February edition of our Premium Wine Club. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, a couple months ago we decided that we wanted to add uh, a second wine club to our roster. The whole idea behind it was that we get in a lot of wines that we only get sort of like 36 bottles a year of, and we thought that people who are sort of loyal to us and, and who, um, you know, our, our big natural wine geeks should get the opportunity to taste those wines first um, before they end up on the shelf. So we decided to start, uh, you know, sort of a secondary wine club that will only ever have 36 members um, as an opportunity for those subscribers to taste really crazy things. Uh, and this club is going to be no different. It's a, a trio of pretty special wines. Um, today joining us, we have our friend Eric Southward, who will now introduce himself and tell us what he does and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, this is so. like the All Eric podcast, right? Yeah, Eric and Eric, it's perfect. Yeah, uh, yeah. my name is Eric Southward. Um, I'm a wine person here in town. I'm a sommelier for Co-op Wine Spirits Beer. I've been there for, for five years, and I guess, long story short, uh, born and raised in Victoria um, and fell in love with wine as I was in university and serving my way through university and uh, just immediately regretted my decision to, to go to university and after I graduated uh, got into the wine thing completed my you know sommelier accreditation in a couple of years and, and have been in the industry and have done most things in the industry from sales to working in restaurants and retail and and uh, I'm married with a couple of kids and love restaurants but that's a tough tough life and when you have a young family so um, yeah retail is kind of where I found a home and uh and uh, that's where I'm at these days. Perfect. Yeah, I thought that uh, Eric would be a really great candidate for being on the on, on the podcast because, uh, again, we, we were just talking about this right before we started recording, but he has maybe sort of like a more centrist perspective. A lot of the people that we have on the show are like, you know, exclusively natural wine geeks or that's sort of like their main focus versus whenever I get together with Eric, we're sort of drinking like amazing classics or classics that sort of veer towards, you know, sustainable farming and minimal intervention. Um, but being in a retail environment like co-op, you kind of have to, you know, play both sides a little bit where you're like, cool, we need to be a profitable business, which is something that we hope to be, you know, at some point. Uh, <laughs> and then also, you know, at the same time, you want to make sure that your selection is still, you know, top notch. And we've always really respected your willingness to sort of work with us, frankly. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I thought it all sort of made sense. Yeah. Um, and I was just going to say, like, I, I work out of co-op's Midtown location um, and we're a little unique within our company. We have a, over 30 locations, but working downtown, uh, there are more restaurant wine lists and, and stores that sell natural wines and products from your portfolio, mm -hmm. among others. And we do get more customers at our location asking for natural wine and juice imports products. And I don't feel like it's my job to take a stance one way or another. Mm -hmm. I just have to get people what they want and describe the product accurately make sure they know what they're getting into and that could you know be a wine that has very you know clean conventional flavors not that natural wines aren't clean but some people want funky wines and you can find that in conventionally made wines too right it's just more um we see it all right we call ourselves a full service company so we do need to know how to service every type of customer and that includes you know your clients Absolutely. totally yeah, yeah. definitely 
Um, sweet. So we'll jump into the wines. Um, the first wine that we have today, uh, again, we did a we did a survey maybe uh, a month ago, and the crazy thing about the survey was that people were like more orange wine and more sparkling wine, and. Again, in Alberta, there's this huge stereotype that Albertans, like, all they want to drink is really heavy red wines. And so to, like, actually poll people and be like, hey, what do you actually want to drink? And for them not to follow that sort of preconceived notion, we are really, really excited. And so we decided to make more of an effort to include sparkling and orange wine. And in this case, a sparkling orange wine, uh, you know, to really make everybody happy, I guess. So this is a, a little project coming out of Margaret River, which is in Western Australia. Um, the, um, this is made by our, our friend Joe, Josephine Perry. Um, she is focused on um, minimal intervention wines that are, but that are super clean and super classic, which is again, something that obviously we identify with. Um, she fell in love with the Swan River, which is just adjacent to Margaret River, where she, she actually lives in Margaret River and that's where most of her wine comes from. But she fell in love with the, the Swan River Valley, um, which is one of the most historic winemaking regions in Australia. Uh, it's been planted for well over 150 years now. So it has a huge, huge amount of history, a ton of really old vines and a lot of um, sort of Italian influence from Italian immigrants. Um, you see Spanish grape varieties here as well. Um, it's sort of a different mix than you see in the rest of Australia. And in this case, we have um, a wine made from Trebbiano. The interesting thing about Trebbiano is there's like a billion different types of Trebbiano, and we're not totally sure which Trebbiano this happens to be. Uh, it's one of those weird grapes that that is actually multiple different grapes, but that falls under one name, sort of like Sangiovese. There are a bunch of different types of Sangiovese that are actually not really that genetically similar to one another. Um, and so Trebbiano is kind of in the same boat. So this is grown in Swan River Valley, uh, and this is made in a Patnat style. Maybe you want to talk about Patnat a little bit because I, I think it's a style that you maybe dig or... Yeah, absolutely. You know. and, and I would say for people that, that like sparkling wine um, and, and love really good sparkling wine, I know you and Mark are fans of champagne, but can't, you know, if you're like me, can't always be opening champagne every night. But Patnat is a, a kind of an ancient way to make sparkling wine. Um, and, and I think this wine, you know, they, they uh, almost ferment all the sugar out of, out of the juice, put it in bottle, and, and kind of allow it to kind of finish fermentation, right? And they're capturing uh, a bit of, uh, of CO2, not as much bubbles as, as might be in traditional sparkling wine. So there's, there's a bit of a spritz here, a bit of sp sparkling quality to the wine, but it's not fully sparkling or what we would call mm -hmm. fully sparkling. Um, but it's also more inexpensive and really good value. And I just find Australian wine really good value these days, right? Totally. I think it's been a little forgotten. And and uh, this this wine is just loaded with character and elegance and it's refreshing. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's really delicious. Yeah, I'm, I'm digging this a lot right now. Um, this is, again, Trebbiano, but fermented on the actual skins of the grapes. Um, <laughs> This is three days on the skins, so it's not a huge amount of time. Uh, speaking to like the scientific literature, um, there is a correlation between um, how bubbly a wine can be and the amount of tannin in that wine. Uh, tannin, like basically that thing that causes a slight amount of bitterness in things like orange wine and red wine that comes from contact with the skins, uh, those basically became, uh, you know, those little molecules became 
um, points that CO2 could basically like pop on. Uh, and so all those like dissolved CO2 bubbles, if they come in contact with, uh, you know, one of these tannin chains, they basically burst and come out of the wine. And so that's why you don't see a ton of sparkling red wines. And the sparkling red wines that you do see are usually like very low tannin. It's basically to preserve the bubbles. So you don't see a ton of sparkling orange wine for the exact same reason. Mm. Um, not only that, but CO2 really exacerbates bitterness in wines. Um, so it's like, you know, you wouldn't want to put like your Bordeaux through a soda stream or something like that. It'd be pretty like <laughs> undrinkable because of the amount of tannins. Um, but this is like really got that uh, almost tonic-like quality where you get that almost sort of like gin and tonic sort of like mouthfeel mm-hmm. where it's spritzy, but then also like has that drying effect that's really nice. So, yeah. And I, and I find too bitterness is a bit of a love-hate quality, especially mm-hmm. for our North American palate. You know, other cultures might value bitterness in their food a little, a little more and in their drinks and you know with food that does round out and it is you know maybe with some some fatty cheese and and or, or something like that it's it's gonna bring out the fruit flavor even more and and mm-hmm. um smooth out a bit of those those tannic edges right to the wine for sure but i love it on its own like i'm, yeah. I'm someone who who loves bitter things and sour things and um i i find it crushable on its own yeah you know, definitely for sure yeah, I think there's, I, I like that, you know, sour and bitter quality, like, uh, again, sort of bringing this back to like the beer crowd as well, too, where it's like, you know, th- this is cheaper than Cantillon, uh, but has like <laughs> a lot of things that people like about Cantillon in this, uh, you know, whether that be, again, being tart and refreshing, whether it be, again, some of the sort of herbal notes. Um, for me, this has this really like gorgeous sort of like lemon verbena meets like, Tim Horton's peach juice kind of like characteristic. Totally. Um, the first thing I thought about is the juice you get in a tin of peaches. Yeah. You know, that <laughs> peach nectar, what it, like that's jumping out of the glass. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. A style that I definitely like. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give a little context about the label for this wine, um, this is coming from Josephine's uh, side project, which is called the Yokel. Uh, Yokel focuses on the Swan River Valley, like we talked about earlier. And the reason for that is that the Swan River Valley is actually um, where uh, this particular tortoise that's featured on the label is actually indigenous to. And Josephine fell like in love with this tortoise. It's the most endangered uh, tortoise in, in, I think maybe in the world, but uh, certainly in Australia. Um, it's uh, the West Australian swamp tortoise. And uh, basically she's participated in conservation efforts, everything from um, delivering like eggs out into the wilderness or however that happens. You can see it all online through like the, um, uh, through like the Perth Zoo and stuff like that. So she's been like hugely, just fell in love with this creature and just decided that she wanted to save it. And so she donates a portion of the proceeds from this sideline, uh, basically just to help raise awareness and, and participate in these conservation efforts, which is, it's just so funny that a wine can do that. And I get so excited about stuff like that because obviously with all the sort of causes in the world right now and sort of our, our hyper awareness of, you know, our, our need to create positive change in the world. Um, I just love hearing about different things that people are passionate about that they're that they're excited to you know try and change for the better and so yeah i I thought that that's a really awesome and hilarious reason to start a wine label it's 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 great and and i think we've talked about this before but there's just a ton of great wine in the world and Mm -hmm. you get to vote with your dollars and why not you know if you can support good people 
over people that you know maybe you don't like as much like totally. uh, it, why not like if you love animals like great like this is fantastic I, I'll, I'll admit I, I cheated a little bit and read up on the, on the wine before I came here and yeah it's, <laughs> it's the most endangered reptile in Australia yeah this this little tortoise so if you love animals I love animals like you could literally promote a little change just by buying delicious wine like why not totally yeah, I, I'm making the joke that uh, that today's lineup is critter wines because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got the you got the fox on the Candeli label, and then we we have Hardy, uh, who could be a critter of his own on uh, on the Dirty and Rowdy yeah. label. So yeah. this is the full on critter wine lineup, which I think is pretty epic. So, yeah. <laughs> and, um, it, it, and it's funny to see the evolution of of Australian wine, and and of course working for co op, I do sell a ton of these old school wines, the yellow tails of the world that, you know, almost represent an era. And for me, I think the nineties of where people were just marketed to with like cute animals on the, on, on the labels, but the wines were, you know, in a lot of ways, very soulless and, and it's kind of come around to where it actually means something, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and they're not heavily marketed. It's just, Hey, we just like this animal and that's the only reason we're putting it on the label. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to know, so between talking to producers and talking to uh, people working retail, they've noticed that Australia in, in the wine world is going through this sort of transition point right mm-hmm. now where mm-hmm. they become very obsessed with one particular idea sort of for like a decade or two, basically like, you know, late 80s, 90s, early 2000s, this idea of making high alcohol, really juicy um, really consistent wines across the board, but really focusing on, on that high extraction, dense, dark, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, at least the red wines and then the white wines historically being very bright, very clean, very fresh, often unoaked, often geared towards sort of bag, bag and box crowd. Um, and then over the last little bit, that's become less favorable. It's not as popular to drink wines that are, you know, 14 and a half to 15 and a half percent alcohol. Um, you know, people sort of realize how few foods these wines actually go with. Um, and then there's also this push towards more individuality, whether that be between region to region or from producer to producer and focusing on grape varieties that are maybe more sustainable for, you know, that are more drought resistant, that are more uh, heat tolerant, that are more, uh, can deal with salinity in the soils, different things like that. And so now there's this weird resurgence that's happening in Australia of young producers doing really, really cool things. Um, but the market has kind of like crashed for Australian wines yeah. uh, because of this historic style. So they're almost having to do this like major re-education of the entire world of wine drinkers being like, no, no, like we actually make some wines that are only like 12 and a half or 13 percent alcohol, not just like 15 percent alcohol. Um, how have you seen that sort of transition, I guess, from both like the wines that you choose to put on the shelf uh and as well as like the wines that are being asked for by consumers, I guess. Yeah, you said a lot in that. Also, <laughs> that's yeah, it's a it's a big question for us. Is you know, um, as a retailer, we're we're always looking at, at trends, right? And Australia, let's just talk about Australia, but it's happening with other countries too. Countries that that kind of. Um, kind of sell their souls a little bit for short-term trends to kind of catch on to a trend, it's not sustainable, right? And they kind of, in in the long term, if you're opening yourselves up 
to trends, there's not going to be any sustainability, right? So right now in in Australia, in our stores, that category is shrinking, right? And and people associate that entire country, for better or worse, with value wines, right? And it's really tough for me if someone's looking for, let's say, $50 Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I could try to sell them more inexpensive, really good $30 cab from Australia, but they just associate it associate it with like cheap wine mm-hmm. right and so um it's tough to fight through the consumer's preconceived ideas and and like you said i think the whole country has to think how are we going to sustainably promote our country not over just five years or ten years to ride a wave of of a trend but how can we just grow this country sustainably and its image and and so that when farmers do put their blood, sweat, and tears into our product, they're not butting up against, you know, all these mistakes we've made in yeah. the past. So um, it just takes time. Sadly, it, it it's going to take time. And um, I think, you know, that European model of creating these boundaries of, of regions with distinct grape varieties and images and regions, they can't react to market demands and fluctuations as quickly these new world wines but the thing is also they don't you know succumb to these massive drop-offs in in when the bubble bursts right so i think it's trying to find that that balance um and man it's easy to sell 70 80 100 champagne in 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 our stores but try yeah. to sell really good quality 25 to 35 dollar sparkling wine from northern italy austria Australia, like, and it's impossible. It's yeah. really people want fifteen dollar cheap sparkling wine, or they're you know they'll throw a hundred bucks at, at champagne, no problem. Yeah. Countries, you know, like I think of Chile, Argentina, you know that I think they're going to have to rethink how they're promoting their products as well, because mm-hmm. um, if you're just catering to these, you know, these big companies that are just always going to rush down to the that kind of lowest common denominator in terms of price cost that's it that's all they're doing um it's not going to benefit their whole industry long term so mm-hmm. um so as a retailer I, I i've said a lot but you know we try to ride those waves as best we can yeah. but also if you come to my store and if you actually honestly ask me where the best values are it's going to be in the places that aren't trendy right yeah. that's where you're going to find them you have to be brave a little courageous mm-hmm. you have to trust your sommelier and and the the guys at Juice and, and the guys at I we have amazing a, a retail community in this in this you know city in this province you know just just trust the people if you feel like you're being heard and you communicate exactly what you want from a flavor perspective and you say hey find me the best wine for twenty bucks chances are you'll you might buy a wine you wouldn't think you would have purchased but yeah. it's gonna be delicious yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah no I agree I agree with all those things. Um, yeah, it's. I think we talked about this last time. Uh, uh, with we had Aaron from Ten Foot Henry uh, mm-hmm. on last time, yeah. and we talked about the idea that um, you know you want to sell people things that they're going to enjoy, not just what they ask for. Yeah. Uh, it's this idea that like they're like, hey, I'm looking for like a cab at like twenty five dollars, and they're like, cool. 
what they're not asking for is a cab at $25. They want a wine that gives them the flavors of cab for $25. It's not necessarily that it says cab on the label that they're looking for. If the thing that they're looking for is like, again, dark fruit flavors, maybe a little edge of herbaceousness, maybe a little bit of oak in there, then like you can give them a wine that's, that's maybe even better uh, or that maybe like tailored a little bit more to their palate because maybe they don't know that they like maybe they want a little more spice in it or maybe they want something a little bit lighter body than what cab tends to deliver mm-hmm. and so it's like you want to give them what they want not necessarily what they ask for uh, and that's sort of like always the fine line that you have to walk in the in the retail world and I guess also in the in the restaurant world and so it's uh, yeah it's it's something that we talk about all the time is like how are what's the best ways of, of sort of guiding people in so you're giving them everything that they want because uh, I think it is doable. Like it is Absolutely. doable to not say no. And, it's, a li- it's a little harder in a retail setting and it, it's harder with COVID because before we could have offered a taste, you know, to people and, and, you know, they get to try, you know, an ounce or two of wine and, and you can say, hey, like this is something you might enjoy. It's from Portugal, you know, and you may not have had this Portuguese variety before, but it, it tastes a lot like cab and it's velvety and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now it's like they, they do have to trust you totally. Yeah. You know what I mean? They are putting all their chips into the middle, spending the 20 to $30 before they try it. That's a little tougher in a retail setting. Definitely. Um, and that's why I, you know, I always feel like the best people that work retail are the people that are able to to listen the best, to get as much information out of that consumer in as short amount of time as possible to really understand what they're meaning. Um, you know, and if, if you can't decipher that in a short amount of time, then you're gonna have a, a hard time recommending the right wine, right? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing worse than like, you know, buying a bottle of wine and you take it home and it's not what you were wanting, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> like I think if you guys, if you guys were looking for something refreshing and tangy and you got this just like, it, like alcoholic oaky wine yeah. i just know that like that you would probably not go back to that place right totally yeah. yeah yeah it happens to us like within our like own little sphere as well every once in a while yeah. where it's you know where we you know we like to think we know a lot about wine and so sometimes we go into a store being like oh i heard this is like this and then don't bother asking the question pick up a bottle off the shelf or whatever get home be like oh wow this is totally not what i was expecting it to be and i should have just asked somebody because again that's the thing is like we have 400 wines in our own portfolio to keep track of that's more than one bottle of wine a day all year even just to keep track of our own portfolio and so when we're buying from somebody else it's definitely always worth uh asking and and trusting sort of you know the staff that are there who actually know the know what's on the shelves for sure Cool. Uh, before we get too far away from it, let's get uh, into the next wine here. Um, so Candeli Invierno. So this is um, Candeli's sort of, I don't know, I guess their take on a winter wine, as close as uh, wintry as Candeli gets. Usually Candeli is quite bright, quite fresh, uh, but they wanted to make something with, you know, a little more guts to it, something that sort of reminds them of, you know, sort of wintertime. Um which in Nelson, New Zealand, which is where this comes from, is slightly different than the minus 30-something degrees that we're currently experiencing. So their version of winter is a, a little bit different than our version of winter, for sure. Um, so Kindeli is made by Alex Craighead, uh, a good friend of mine. I actually went and worked at this winery a couple years ago um, and so sort of had like an intimate uh, understanding of how the cellar works, of what the vineyards look like, of the grape varieties that they're working with, and of the style that they they tend to aim for. Um, this is coming from the 2019 vintage, which 
has a huge amount of influence on the way that this wine actually performs in the glass. Um, New Zealand, again, it definitely experiences vintage variation, but normally in a coastal area like Nelson, you end up with fewer weather fluctuations from year to year. Um, but this was a huge exception. This was the year where all those crazy fires were happening. Uh, it was super dry. And basically dry results, at least in organic and, and biodynamic vineyards that aren't irrigating, uh, it often results in reduction in the wine, uh, which is something that we can definitely find in this wine, where it's like, this wine just loves oxygen. It just wants to be like out and about. It wants you to splash it super hard into a decanter and then uh, you know drink it vigorously. Um, this is made from 90% Pinot Noir, um, fermented with Pinot Gris. Uh, and then while they're topping up the barrels, uh, they're topping it with Gewürztraminer, uh, which I think is the funniest thing of all time. They're like, what wine do we have some of right now? And they're like, Gewürz, okay, we'll fill the headspace with Gewürz. Uh, so it's like, it probably makes up 1% of this wine, but it's like just a hilarious little sort of ode to their vineyard. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is your first, this is probably your first time tasting this wine? Yeah, this is the first time tasting yeah. this wine, and I'm glad yeah. you you mentioned the reductive aspect of the wine mm-hmm. before me because I was honestly trying to, in my head, formulate how I was going to describe this wine. Yeah. But, you know, for those at home that, that don't understand what we mean when we're talking about reduction, basically through the, the winemaking process, the winemakers um, trying to make the wine as clean as possible and, and, um, and as limited oxygen at certain points through the winemaking process. And it's just given off a bit of a... Some people would call it matchstick or, you know, smokiness or however you want to describe it. Mm-hmm. But for people at home, if they're going to be lucky enough to get this wine, like a huge decant would definitely help it out. If you if you want to see it through, it's kind of blowing off the reduct- reductive phase. You can just do what we're doing and popping and pouring. But if you want to get the fruit, coax the fruit out of it, which is, you know, beautiful in this wine and, and red and taut and, and delicious, um, it's going to come about through the like you said the more air you can just shake into this wine the, yeah, the better totally and it's interesting too because like literally every wine across the board um from him maybe not every single wine but pretty much every wine is like reductive from the mm-hmm. 2019 vintage and so i was talking to him the other day and he's like oh yeah 2020 he's like i'm so excited for those wines he's like there's some of the best wines i've ever made and because we didn't experience drought that year uh they're like everything's like less reductive mm-hmm. and so everything's more like pop and pour, which is kind of more the Candeli style historically. Like you don't usually need to decant a bottle of Candeli, um, but in this vintage, they definitely like a little bit more oxygen than, than previously. Um, and that's basically coming from uh, what happens with drought is that the grapes are less able to uptake nitrogen. Um, and nitrogen is like really essential during fermentation for the actual yeast. And so the yeast are basically like starved for for nitrogen. And so you can sort of opt to give them a ton of oxygen, um, which again, helps sort of wake those yeasts up, helps them, you know, basically metabolize the sugars to create alcohol. Um, But if you want to protect the wine from oxygen to a greater or lesser degree, you're not really doing that. And so these yeasts are struggling. They're giving off what we call volatile sulfur compounds, which is again, that sort of like match sticky, um, sort of like, you know, like hot spring kind of note, depending on how you want to think about it. This one's like, 
it almost shows like really like gravelly uh this like really like gunpowder kind of reduction mm. that you'd sort of expect out of like the northern rhone because uh, that's the first thing that i think about here yeah. is like that Syrah, for sure totally that Syrah kind of reduction mm. there's also just like weirdly certain grapes that tend to be more reductive yeah. Syrah and uh and muvedra being you know amongst those for for reductive sort of grape varieties and also this winemaker is is really well known for being very clean and making clean wines and again if if you were to add too much oxygen right then that's just a vehicle for for little microbes and bacteria right to kind of go crazy so mm-hmm. um so i can see how in, in this type of environment in this vintage you know he'd rather put up with a little reduction which will go away with time or with a bit of error mm-hmm. rather than giving life to you know acetobacter which could totally. run rampant and, yeah. and then you know that's just not what he wants right totally yeah yeah this wine is like a lot more beastly than i remember it being mm-hmm. uh for some reason i had completely blanked on the fact that it's 13 percent alcohol this vintage because it was 11 percent alcohol last mm-hmm. vintage which again goes to show that in a hot, dry vintage, you're ending up with like raisination, so the grapes are actually shriveling to a greater or lesser degree. You're getting more concentration of sugars in, in the grape juice, which results in higher levels of alcohol in the final wine. Um, so yeah, this thing is like gutsy. Uh, I definitely, like last vintage was, again, very herbal. Like it was like sort of medicinal, uh, lots of sort of like ginseng, green tea kind mm-hmm. of like characteristics to it. Uh, versus this vintage, yeah, like way more sort of like dark, spicy fruit and absolutely smoky, spicy, and yeah. And isn't that the fun of honest winemaking, where the vintage totally. does have a voice, um, and the winemaker just lets that voice be heard loud and clear, mm-hmm. right? And if you're a fan of a producer and you're a fan of a place, you know, just to see that, just how it has a different personality year to year, and it, you know, it's um, it's amazing. Like that's just amazing that you can a wine can take you to a year in a place Mm -hmm. and you know the weather and you know like what it would be like and that's the the best totally um i guess to to talk about like a cool winemaking thing would be to talk about Mm co-fermentation what are your sort of like thoughts and opinions on co-fermentation are you like yay or nay or is it like something that you think that more people should adopt as maybe a protocol or what's the sort of thoughts there well just I don't know if I have a strong opinion one way or another. I think it, it's just different flavors, different textures, and, and there's a time and place for for both. Um, you know, and, and just the fact that this has Gewurztraminer added on top is just a nice little other layer is, is hilarious. But um, uh, yeah, I'm just a fan of, of different experiences. So the fact that, you know, he's co-fermenting Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris in this is just something I don't think I've ever experienced before and that's awesome right and maybe people you know because you know pinot gris is essentially just a clone of pinot noir maybe i have it's just it was all a field blend and they didn't know they were blending it you know co-fermenting it but um yeah do you have a strong opinion one way or another or or? i don't know i i think that so this is the thing that i find really interesting is that and and do you mean as opposed to just making the wine separately yeah. and then blending at the end. Exactly. Yeah. And so, like, for me, the thing that's really interesting about co-fermenting is that, like, there's a different chemistry in, like, the juice of Pinot Noir than there is in the juice of Pinot Gris. 
And so the way that that juice is able to like extract things from the skin is different because mm-hmm. there'll be like different pHs, they'll have maybe different amounts of solids, there'll be there'll be something sort of physically different about those two things. Sure. And so for Pinot Gris juice to be participating in the extraction of Pinot Noir skin and vice versa, mm-hmm. that's like an interesting thing to me where I think that it probably ends up making like maybe a mo- more coherent wine um, or like a more like tighter knit, more stitched together sort of wine because there are these like way more interesting sort of like in complex sort of like chemical interactions happening versus if you're making two separate wines and blending um you know you're, you're basically just taking two components as opposed to making like one component out of two things if yeah, that makes any sense absolutely it does and i'm even thinking like would yeast perform differently exactly you know throughout yeah. that process and, and yeast has a massive you know signature on 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 how a wine tastes and feels but also would it change how the yeast performs at different stages of fermentation and what would the end result yeah, be there. Totally. Um, so it more for me just opens, I, I can see a winemaker being really excited with how it came out in the end one way, but also I can see potentially, like you said, depending on the grape variety, the quantity of each grape, they might also just not like it. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Totally. Or the fermentation didn't go through the way they wanted or mm-hmm. like you said extraction were changed there's so many variables yeah the percentages could change whole bunch versus destemmed all these things mm-hmm. it's it's kind of <laughs> my brain can't handle all the possible combinations yeah. <laughs> and i couldn't for say say for certain which i would prefer right yeah i know i like sure. this wine yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um, yeah it's but uh, in theory i agree with you like there's i i it it seems more honest to just put everything together in at once mm-hmm. versus you know in a lab at the end you're just picking all these samples yeah. from different barrels or vats or tanks or concrete eggs whatever and just trying to blend this perfect little yeah. you know wine totally yeah yeah it ends up being like a little more uh like maker focused as opposed That's to right. yeah um but obviously like not all great varieties are going to be ripe at the same time either and so like the pinot gris for this was probably like hysterically ripe uh if it was ripe at the same time as the pinot because when i was there like we were picking pinot gris like a month earlier in some cases than pinot noir Mm -hmm. um and we picked pinot gris like all along the way but the earliest pinot gris that we picked was like definitely a month before uh you know some of the some of the pinot noir that we were picking and like by the time that i left and i was there for like a a long time we hadn't even picked the syrah yet so it's like <laughs> you obviously can't co-ferment everything because some of it's just going to be ready early and some of it's going to be ready late um but I, th- I think you and i were talking about like marcel deese that one time yeah um and about like his whole like weird philosophy about like interplanting grape varieties that's right and they you know his philosophy really he really feels like the the grapes will adapt more to the vineyard than vice versa do you know what i mean and mm-hmm. he finds that things just start ripening together in the end and and he feels uh like if you do just and, and again training practices and, and pruning and, and training the vine to give you what you want that's a big part of it too mm-hmm. but he feels like even if he's co-fermenting a myriad of grapes you know like a bunch of grapes together the vineyard still will have its voice mm-hmm. you know and i think that's he doesn't really 
worry about it, right? Yeah. And he, he just feels like in the end, if you farm properly, um, yeah, that the grapes will adapt eventually to what you're trying to do. They're yeah. here, they'll hear what you're trying to do and, and mm-hmm. where the vineyard is trying to coax them. Yeah. I think yeah. that's like, it's super interesting. And I would love somebody to do like an actual, like peer reviewed scientific study about the validity of all his statements about you know different grape varieties and then like them communicating underground via their root systems and like releasing hormones that like trigger the ripening of all these different and like disparate grape varieties at the same time that's right and it's like he has anecdotal evidence of like hey i have you know 13 different grape varieties planted in this one hectare of vineyards and they all get ripe at the same time can you explain that and he's like i've just offered you like a, a potential solution for why that happens if you have a better reason for why it happens, please tell me, but I'm telling you that this is what's happening. Uh, so I'd be really curious for somebody to actually go in and do the research there. But Absolutely. And it just, yeah. I've got so many geeky, weird questions about things like rootstocks and things like exactly. that. Exactly. Where I'm just, yeah. this could go off on a really <laughs> technical <laughs> this tangent. This is a huge tangent, yeah. for sure. Which I don't know if we need to get into. Yeah. Um, just to digress to Candeli a little bit more before we move on to the next wine, um, just to bring some, some things up that I think are really cool. Uh, on his property, um, he has sort of like two major vineyard blocks, and they're actually divided by um, this sort of like like tree area. Uh, and basically, he's, he's decided that he wants there to be sort of this like wildlife pathway in the middle of his property because he's like the the migration of animals and the inclusion of animals for biodiversity's sake uh, is extremely important to the welfare of the vineyards that happen to surround them. Uh, They also have cows on their property that uh, his parents basically take care of uh, because they're really stoked on the the cows. They're really fun. While I was there, I got to see them and they're... uh, yeah, they're a little shy for sure. They don't want to like come up and like play with you, I guess. But they're, they're hanging out there while you're harvesting and it's kind of interesting. Um, but he does a lot of really cool things. Like uh, his bottles are actually uh, made from recycled glass in New Zealand. Um, his uh, The boxes that he ships in are again made from like recycled cardboard. Um, so he's really trying to do everything humanly possible. Uh, they've installed like solar panels so that they could be off grid at some point here. Um, they recycle their uh, gray water um, because they actually have like wetland on the property as well. So water conservation is like hugely important to them. And so it's not even just in their farming where they're using things like, um, you know, local seaweed and like bat guano as like uh, as like fertilizers and, and treatments in the vineyard. It actually goes to the philosophy of the entire brand, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is hugely important. And everybody just talks about the easy stuff to talk about, which is, oh, yeah, we don't use pesticides and herbicides or at least synthetic ones. Uh, nobody talks about all the other things which are like equivalently horrible for the environment whether that be the fact that this wine is now in alberta uh, is like again probably not the greatest thing for the environment of all time but it's again at least he's making these considerations um even the top of the bottle is actually not dipped in wax it's actually dipped well it's dipped in wax but it's a local beeswax from uh like the apiary like down the street or whatever so every little part of it is just like as as sort of like insular as possible which is really cool yeah um but yeah i think all that stuff is really fun to sort of think about um we were having a discussion the other day about sustainability and how it means so much more than just environmental sustainability it also means uh, social sustainability and economic sustainability Absolutely. and so it's uh it's cool that these you know that we can have these conversations for sure 
and it's and that's just a symptom that you can tell of just him being thoughtful. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and a thoughtful winemaker isn't just thinking about one little aspect of of making wine. Someone you know like this is innately curious, thinking about how you can make the best product, like you said, from the cork to the bottle and mm-hmm. the weight of the glass. And, you know, totally. I think it just frustrates me to no end when, you know, this trend of just heavier glass, heavier glass, you know, and, and uh, it's just not needed, right? No. <laughs> a bigger bottle doesn't make better wines. So. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, it's, that's one of the most infuriating things to me in the entire world. And often when I see those big ostentation bottles, I'm immediately like, I don't want to have that wine because I just think that that's such a dick move. Yeah. Like that bottle probably cost you like $5 in the winery. And then you added a markup to it. The importer added a markup and then the retailer added a markup. Yeah. So you're maybe paying like on that hundred dollar bottle of wine, maybe like $20 for glass, sure. like let alone like the, the packaging, like the, the actual label, yeah. uh, the cork itself is like maybe adding $5 to that. If you wants like a really ostentatiously long cork uh it's like all these things are just so mind-blowing to me we're like so how much did you pay for the grapes like the wine like what part of that was actually wine you know on that bottle like immediately like ten dollars of that is going to the government as well so if you add all those things in you're like so the wine costs like four dollars <laughs> uh it's yeah i don't know i find all that super funny but yeah how insecure are we in the wine business that we're overcompensating you know so much by totally. just like let's make our bottles as big as possible yeah exactly yeah for sure um cool so the last one that we have today um we every month we try and throw something in that's just like ultra crazy um you know it's it's pretty fun having this sort of extra little budget. Um, you know, it's it's been a, a real yeah. <laughs> this this I just put my nose in the glass. The smile on my face is yeah exactly. <laughs> we we can't capture it via the audio, but uh, but Eric is is very happy with what's in the glass right now. Um, yeah, so it, it, I obviously love curating the. Um, the regular wine club, but having this like extra little bit of budget just means that we can throw such ludicrous bottles into this club. Uh, this one included where it's like, you know, we get 60 bottles of this. We've only ever had 60 bottles of this. We've never gotten an allocation before. Um, and this is from one of our favorite producers and this is like one of his coolest wines and it's one of the coolest packages I've ever seen. Uh, and so it just sort of ticks all the boxes. Mark and I have just been like foaming at the mouth to drink this. So it's, uh, this is like a really, exciting opportunity. Um, this is coming from Dirty and Rowdy, so made by our friend Hardy Wallace, um, as well as uh, his family and his best friend family as well. So it's it's really sort of a communal effort to make these wines come into existence. Uh, this particular one is coming from the Shalone AVA, uh, which is sort of right beneath uh, Pinnacle National Park. So think like Central California, super high elevation, like basically in the mountains, uh, really interesting geology here. Um, everything's from, from limestone to granite to volcanic soils. Um, quite rocky, quite mixed in all together. Uh, and this is like a classic blend, but this is Hardy's take on it. He's become really famous for um, doing, I don't know, a dozen single vineyard Mouvedres that are just all completely mind blowing. And so he wanted to do his sort of rendition of the traditional GSM blend, which is Grenache Mouvedre Syrah. And he decided to do an MSG, uh, Mouvedre Syrah Grenache. Uh, probably 
as much for the naming opportunities as for uh, you know the fact that it's it's made I don't know supremely delicious wine. Um, I don't know. I guess initial thoughts, feelings. It's so delicious. I I love how it feels Californian to me. It doesn't like, and I think that's a good thing. Like mm-hmm. I think people would uh, assume wrongly that people that like natural wine or you know wouldn't tend to like California wine or, or wouldn't buy California wine but this is California at its at its best like what you would want like it is yeah. explosively aromatic with drippingly ripe fruit but it's not you know there's an, an alcohol that's out of balance but yeah. it is delicious like it's just yummy like it it's so yummy <laughs> it uh, you know the texture is velvety and um, but it is intense and it is balanced and you can you know, drink a lot of this and it, yeah. it would be great, right? So it's not fatiguing, mm-hmm. but it it's still screams where it's from. Um, can I ask you, is this the first uh, winery you signed? Because I associate Dirty and Rowdy with juice kind of as like you guys getting started. Like Yeah, it, they, were the, they were the second winery from California that we signed. Okay. So they were within our first year, yeah. um, within our first like four months, basically. Uh, we'd signed them because we used to, um, drive down to the border to get our allocation yeah. every year, like between obviously Jeremy, who you're really good friends with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, between Jeremy driving down to the border, uh, Jesse Willis, the owner of Vine Arts, driving down to the border, yeah. and us driving down to the border to get our allocations every year, we're like, hey, we should probably just import this, eh? Yeah. And uh, yeah, Hardy was like super kind, gave us an allocation right off the bat. Um, and the wines have just like, quietly done really well for us over you know the last four and a half years i guess Um, yeah i I just know in my mind i'll always associate like i remember thinking whoa like these wines like like they were able to get these wines into the market yeah good for them and it i just remember being excited and and uh it's just it's exciting to have these wines like in in our market it's it's so awesome yeah yeah this is this is wild it's uh, like so floral um, I love when something's this ripe and this sort of like opulent, but that at the same time has all that delicacy of those sort of like floral, like again, like candied violet kind of notes. Um, it's really sort of like rose petally mentholated. Yep. You know, you get this alpine characteristic from it that I really like. Um, yeah, it's just a very well composed wine. <laughs> and and sometimes I think of wine this this way when it gets too heavy. I, I think of music like the bass notes are taking over and you don't get any of that top end and in Mm -hmm. this wine like you were saying it has those base notes the the richness and the velvetiness but you get those more elegant explosive floral aromatics and and the menthol or minter or kind of fresh sage that you were talking about Mm -hmm. that herbaceousness that's really lovely and you're getting it all right and sometimes it doesn't matter where you're growing wine it can be in Europe or non-Europe whatever if it's just imbalance one way you're not going to get that full range and this is just it's you could look at it as just being yummy and or you could look at it as really interesting and and totally. just you know and and just smell it all day so mm-hmm. it's just giving you that full spectrum definitely and i think like as far as ageability goes this wine is definitely the one of the bunch that you'll you'd want to lay down um Again, guessing how long a wine's going to age is always a, a tricky situation. But you know, I I think like five plus years for sure. Uh, I don't think this wine would have any trouble going that distance. The tannins are obviously developed enough 
there's lots of intensity. It's not not shy on intensity, not shy on acidity, all the things that you need in order for a wine to age particularly well. And so, yeah, I think that if you were to tuck this away for five years, I, I don't think it would get worse, that's for sure. Not at all. And I think I maybe it's just because it's so velvety and, and there's just tons of gobs of delicious red fruit. Like, it feels like more Grenache to me than maybe the, I don't know what the percentage is. And maybe it's just the climate and how it's, this is what Mulved tastes like yeah. in in Shalon and in this part of, of California. But um, I always associate this kind of texture with Grenache. So if you're mm-hmm. scared off by Mulved that might be a little broad-shouldered and rough around the edges, yeah. this is this is very approachable. Like yeah. This is yummy. If you totally. like your wines very kind of young and you like that, that fruit character and when you age it it might get more savory but if you mm-hmm. don't like that savory like this is yummy now like i don't think this is infanticide to just no, drink a lot of this right now yeah <laughs> it's it's rocking and rolling yeah um yeah darn it's so good i'm it's so, so good. excited about this wine mm-hmm. um yeah dirty and rowdy right across the board has always been really exciting for us uh every year we get sort of a couple limited release cuvees and then we have sort of larger quantities of um what he calls his familiar line. So familiar for him uh, is a blend of all the different vineyards of Mouvedre that he has. And then usually, you know, a tiny little bit of Grenache here, a little bit of Syrah there, a little bit of, you know, Alicante Boucher, a little bit of Muscat, who knows? Uh, He throws a bunch of little things in there just to sort of round things out. Um, But that entry level wine for 40 bucks, I I think is, you know, sort of one of the best deals in the province for um, just really well farmed, really beautifully made small production California wine. Um, and it's taken off at a lot of different places. Like it's, you know, it's one of the wines that we sell most widely because it has a huge consumer base. It can appeal to a wide variety of people, but it's often sitting at, you know, 12 and a half to 13% alcohol, which again is not always the case in California, but that's exciting that they're able to make wines that are, are ripe and, and pure at those prices. And the other thing that you'll see almost across the board for uh, their wines for red is whole cluster fermentation. So this is 100% whole cluster fermentation, um, which again, just knowing the producers that you like to drink, whether that be Lapierre or uh, you know certain Burgundy producers and Northern and Rome Rome producers, Rome. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if you have a, a comment on on whole cluster and maybe what you enjoy about it and when you think it's you know most well, practical. Well, I think for this climate, I think we would probably still classify this as, as you know, warm or warm climate wines, right? For like, sure. I don't think yeah. there's any danger of, of the stems not being ripe. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've, I've talked to, to different winemakers, Greg Harrington down in uh, Gramercy, you know, who has some very strong opinions on lignified stems and color of stem, whatever. But, um, and he would always just, he's moving towards hundred percent all the time. Yeah. Like just whole cluster. But, um, I think for this climate, it just makes sense. It's, you know, it's grounding the wine. It's adding some savoriness to the wine. And mm-hmm. um, and because the fruit is so ripe and delicious, like it's just, it's it's still covering up all those stems, right? And the stems, they're not sticking out in any way. Like no. you're not getting any overt, you know, herbaceous notes that are unpleasant or, or anything like that. It'll, yeah. it'll always help these wines, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes sense, right? I know in some climates, producers, you know, some cooler climates, you know, they'll make a decision based on the weather. You know, I would imagine in most years, you know, for dirty and rowdy, the weather's warm enough where it just yeah. makes sense. Totally. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, that's the thing is like basically every year they're doing 100% whole cluster on everything. Um, I think the only one that they destem is uh, the Putsi Syrah because they're like, oh, cool. Like we definitely don't need more tannins in this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's like it's one of those wines that's just black as night and just, yeah. you know, intensely flavored. But, yeah. um, so I guess one of the final things that I wanted to ask you about, because you, you do work in, in the restaurant realm as well and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, function more as a sommelier than I ever have, uh, nor probably ever will. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just wondering what you think of as, as pairings across the board here. Um, I write these, you know, pairing like, you know, food and wine pairings every single month for this club. And maybe people get tired of sort of my... Uh, <laughs> my thoughts on what wines go through and you know go with sorry um and so yeah maybe you know starting with the pet nat and then moving to the candeli and then finishing with the the msg from dirty and rowdy um maybe you can give us sort of your thoughts on you know the most practical applications for these wines absolutely i think i think the the pet nat um isn't your average sparkling wine that is just you know, fresh and fruity, like this has some, some savoriness to it that we kind of mentioned because of the skin contact. And I think um, something really strongly flavored and, and with some fat would kind of mm. marry really well. I don't know why, but just something with stinky cheese would be, would be great. Um, and I know you guys have just been living off a diet of cheese and cured meat essentially <laughs> yeah. <so> for <laughs> lockdown. So yeah. um, that's kind of what my my mind kind of went towards but i think it can um it's not your typical you know light sparkling wine it has mm -hmm. some some heft to it uh from a structural point of view so um i know uh pigeonhole in town is just a a, a restaurant i really like and they have that cauliflower i think it's a cauliflower dish with some shaved um you know aged cheese over top yeah and and nice. a dish like that with a lot of umami and strong flavors and and mm -hmm. this would kind of cozy up really well to that yeah um and then the candeli the the pinot noir um i, I just love pinot noir and fish so i think if you mm. can um and i'm from the west coast so uh, the, if you could get the fattiest piece of salmon collar that you could get or salmon belly and um, the acidity in that wine would kind of cut through that that fat really well, and and um, just the red fruit flavors too would, um, you know, they're tangy enough. It would almost mimic squeezing a bit of, of acid over the over the fish too, so it'll brighten things up that way. Um, uh, tuna would work too. So again, just fattier the better, in in my opinion. And then this dirty and rowdy. Oh man, we're in the home of Alberta beef, and and so um, it, it's beef or, or lamb you know would be really good pick your favorite cut um you know uh for me that would be a ribeye that would be great and just really good sea salt keep it simple um and highlight the wine and you know some some roast potatoes and duck fat and i'd be happier truffle fries or with shaved parmesan on top oh, yeah. or something right nice. so um yeah it's that suits Alberta so well and what we typically think our diet would be stereotypically what you think our diet would be. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little more kind of, you know, suiting that. So nice. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm in the same boat on that, that wine for sure. I had like brisket. I was like, perfect. Good, good barbecue brisket. Maybe some uh, Jack Daniels beans. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Be, be a good combo. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Into it for sure. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to come uh, hang out with us and record this uh, podcast. I know it wasn't the warmest day to 
make it down here to uh, headquarters juice. It's so cold uh, outside. It's so cold. I know, and I've been like weirdly walking everywhere the last two days, as I as I normally do, but more more than usual even. So it's uh, it's been extra painful for sure. Well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, if you want to visit Eric, uh, definitely go down to Midtown Co-op and uh, and chat with them. Honestly, if you just go in there, basically ninety percent of the time that they're open, and just ask, you'll be around. Yeah. Um, you know, really great at directing you towards cool things that they get. They get a lot of really interesting sort of exclusives and small production things that. Uh, again, like I think the the stereotype would be like that they don't end up in co-op, uh, which really that just isn't the case. Uh, there's you yep. just get crazy stuff that you know I go in there and my jaw drops. Like oh, I'm so excited to get this. Um, so yeah, definitely stop in there. Um, if you have any questions for us, feel free to send us an email. My email address is Eric E R I K at juiceimports.com. Uh, you can follow us on social media at Juice Imports. Um, yeah, I don't know. Reach out if you have uh, anything you want to say about the podcast and or want to join the wine club or whatever it happens to be. So uh, thanks again, Eric. Appreciate thanks for it. having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we'll chat soon.